Hey, well, welcome. We're going to transition into a time of just looking at God's Word today. We've been in the book of 1 John. If you're unfamiliar with this book, I think most of you are, but if you're not, it's part of the New Testament. It's a really amazing book that was written by the Apostle John as he wrote to a group of churches in a certain area. And uh, today's text is pretty cool, but it's also pretty problematic. And so I'm hoping that you're reading your Bible. If you're reading your Bible, you're going to come to moments when you're going to read it and you're going to go, I have no idea what this is saying, and it's confusing. And when that happens, um, don't get frustrated. Actually understand that when that happens, God's trying to teach you something new and may even challenge you to grow in that moment. We're going to hit one of those today. Um, What I love about John is that he is known as the apostle of love. In fact, if you read his gospel, does anybody know how he refers to himself? The apostle or the, yeah, the person who Jesus loves, right? And so it's interesting that he refers to himself as that, the, the guy who Jesus loves, you know, loves, or the apostle whom Jesus loved. His last words recorded outside of scripture by a really famous historian are also very interesting. John's about to die in a city called Ephesus, which is actually where this region uh, was written for, for this book. And as he's about to die, he gathers around him, the people closest to him, people that he'd been hanging out with in Ephesus and the church for all those years. And they said, teacher, before you go to meet the Lord, is there any one thing you'd like to leave us with? And John says, yep. And they say, well, what's that? And he says, love one another. And this younger, a little more arrogant disciple who wanted something, I think a little bit more sexy says, is that it? And John says, yeah, because it's the Lord's command, and then he died. So those are supposedly John's last words. That gives you an idea. Then if you read his gospel and you read his letters, you're like, I totally get that this guy somehow captured and held hold of Christ's love in a unique way, unlike any of the other apostles. The other thing when he wrote this book is he's combating some heresies of the early church. If you're not familiar with that word, heresy is just the idea of something that's outside of what would be the normal teaching. And, and the apostles were trying to make sure and they were setting a tone for these are the concrete things that you need to know about your faith. And they had other people that were teaching around the area that were teaching things that were kind of opposite of that. Uh, one, of the, one of the folks that was doing that, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, was a part of a sect called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was this idea of secret knowledge. In fact, Gnosis means knowledge. And they said, we've got this secret knowledge that only we've got. And we only give it to certain people that we like. And you've got to get into the club to get to knowledge. And so, so John's writing, he's like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You guys are missing the boat. And so as we come into the last chapter, if you've got your Bible opened up, you can open it up digitally. We've got some notes in there for you as well. But when we come into this last chapter, chapter 5 of this letter, you're going to hear the love again. But in addition to the love, you're going to hear him still combating some of those teachings that are contrary to what God's heart's really about. So when we look at this, we're going to look at Christ's love leads to certain things. And the first thing you're going to see that Christ's love leads you toward is free victory over life's burdens. The first thing that Christ's love leads you and I and anyone that actually really comes after Jesus is free victory over life's burdens. Look at this in 1 through 5 in chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God. To obey his commands. Interestingly, I had a conversation um, not long ago with a young woman who um, was asking about this issue. 
and she said, um, I've been trying to figure out what my sin is. And she was being very specific. She was saying, my sin, because I hear the church talk about we are sinners and we have a need of a savior. But she says, I don't really know what sin is. Now, I tell you that because as you work with people in your community, especially in the Mardella community, especially if they're unchurched, they've never grown up in the church, the concept of sin is not a normal concept that we talk about in our culture. And so we came back to the Ten Commandments so we can understand this idea of obeying His commands. Because when we don't obey His commands, we're in sin. Okay, come on, keep up with me. That's sin, okay? And so let's look at these just for a second, and let's examine these from the perspective of what it means to obey His commands. And the first four deal with our relationship with God. Anybody know what the first one is? Have no other gods before me. So God's saying, hey, don't get fooled by the false impressions. Don't get fooled by the other stuff. I'm the one true God. Make sure your affection is completely on me. The second one is have no idols, right? Make nothing, no man-made image that you're going to bow down to or that you're going to give reverence to. Then he says, don't take the name of the Lord in, which actually better translated means do not misleverage the name of God, which for pastors, this is one that gets violated all the time. The Lord told me, really? Because if he didn't tell you, you're misleveraging his name. Make sure you do not misleverage the name of God. Like, remember and keep the Sabbath holy. Now, these first four deal with the relationship with God. When we're not doing that, we're not keeping his commands. That's exactly what John is thinking of when he writes this. Then the other one's a relationship with other people. Honor your mom and dad. I love this one because this is the one that says it's the first one that comes with a promise, right? The promise is you'll live long in the land. We're going to get to that in a second because he talks about that there's a sin that leads to death. We're going to get to that. Don't murder people. Y'all probably know that one, right? Don't commit adultery, okay? Now, the interesting thing about these two is most of us can go, I've not violated this to you, right? I'm, I don't, any murders in the room? Okay? There's forgiveness for you if you are. Any adulterers, don't raise your hand, okay? But here's the thing with Jesus, though. He says if you've hated your brother or sister in your heart, then you've committed murder, and if you've ever, guys, if you've ever looked at a woman other than your wife with lust, then you've committed adultery. He like messes all of us up on this one, okay? Then he says, don't steal stuff, okay? Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, don't lie, okay? And then don't covet, which is no word that means don't want your neighbor's stuff. Like, don't go, I like his car, wish I had that car, I like his house, want this. Don't, don't do that. That's called being, now what's fun about these is Jesus, when actually encountering the most religious people of his day, they ask him to nail it down to what's the most important thing. Some of you know this, right? They say, what's the most important commandment? What's Jesus say it is? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Okay, that's, by the way, in, in Hebrew, that was something called the Shema, which is fancy for, it's based on those first four. Okay? And, and, and kids memorize this like we would have memorized, Jesus loves me, this I know for the some of you got that one. Bible told me. Right? So that's kind of what they had. And then the, the other piece, he says, then love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hinge on these two, right? So Jesus takes the 10. He, he boils them down to these two. And this is what it means then when they say there's victory. I say there's victory over life's burdens. And then you read this idea of commands. You feel like, well, that's a burden, isn't it? Yeah, anybody ever try to live out the 10? Anybody actually try to live out an actual Sabbath? Ooh, like a 24-hour period where you do no work. Anybody done that one? Anybody ever tried to go a while without being ticked off with somebody, especially after driving on Route 50? <laughs> Hated them in your heart, have you? 
you look at these 10 and I can't get through a day where I'm like, I don't think I can live these out. And then look at what it says in the next verse, next half the verse. And his commands are what? Not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. This is interesting. Even our faith. You see, the problem with the law is that we're flawed. And every time that we try to live out the law, we become prideful if we're doing pretty well at it at times, or we end up condemning ourselves and we see how short we really fall against God's commands and standards. But in Jesus, he lives out the law for us and he overcomes the law by the perfect life. Do you see the difference? Which is why he says it's not burdensome. Because when Christ dwells in you as a believer, he lives out the law. How does he do it? Through those two pieces he gave you, loving God with all of your being and loving your neighbor as yourself. Even if we try to do that, I guarantee we will fall short. But if you allow Christ to live it through you, it changes everything. And that was fun about talking to this young woman about this idea of sin. She had grown up in a religious system where if I can just be good enough, moral enough, right enough, serve my community well enough, then God will accept me. And this is backwards according to John. No, no. God accepts you because of what Christ did for you, and then you appropriate that by faith. Look at the next verse in five. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So in other words, it's not because you're good enough. It's not because you're religious enough. It's because you believe that Jesus is the unique Son of God. And when you believe this and he truly dwells in you, living the law is not a burden. It's a joy. I love this story I found in William Barclay. He's a really good commentator. Let me read this story to you. I think it illustrates really well this issue. There was an old story of a kind, it's kind of a modern parable. Someone once met a young boy who was going to school long before the days of transportation was available. So this is before buses. The boy had to carry another boy who was a smaller boy on his back who was crippled every day to school. A stranger was coming by one day and he saw the boy carrying the other boy. And he says, do you carry him to school every day? And the boy said, yes, I carry him every day to school. He says, that must be a very heavy burden that you carry to school every day. And the young man said, it's not a burden. He's my brother. Why is it easy to live out the commands? And why are they not a burden? Remember what John's been saying? Love your brothers and sisters. He says over and over again in this text, you cannot live out your faith if you hate your brothers and sisters. There has to be this love that outpours from Christ in you to them. And when that happens, he gives me victory over the most difficult situation. So Christ's love leads us to free victory, something he purchased over life's burdens. I guarantee that'll happen if you put your whole faith in him. The second thing is obedient, sacred moments come out of this living relationship. So Christ's love in us leads to obedient, sacred moments. I love this in verse six. You're gonna see through six through 12, a pretty cool, um, again, mystery. There is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. 
Why is John saying this? It's kind of cryptic, isn't it? If you just read this and you didn't know a whole lot about the Bible, you're like, that's kind of like bouncing all over the place. In fact, uh, when uh, Dustin and I and Danny were preparing this week, I'm like, you know what I love about First John that I've realized? I think John was ADHD. Y'all agree? Like when you read his letter, he's like, ping, 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 ping. I'm like, I love it. Like I'm getting him. You're like, I don't get him. I'm like, I get him because I'm ADHD. I love that he's pinging around, but he has one core thought, one topic. But he also has a purpose behind everything he's doing. Let me, let me help you understand the purpose. There was this dude named Serenthus. He was the chief guy over Gnosticism. And he used to teach something that was contrary to what John taught. Here's what he actually taught. At Jesus' water baptism, the spirit of the living God came and descended on Jesus. And until that moment, Jesus was not divine. This was a teaching of this guy. He says, so when we saw Jesus, he's just a normal guy. He's like you and me. He was born of a normal woman. And then when Jesus is baptized, the spirit comes on him. And now he's got divinity. And then divinity hangs with him. Spirit hangs with him the whole time. So he gets right to the crucifixion. And then... God yanks the spirit out of Jesus and he dies. This was a teaching that was happening in John's day. And because of that, that's why you're seeing John talk about the water and the blood. He's saying there's something absolutely significant about the person of Jesus and the water that he's referring to is specifically baptism. And the blood that he's specifically referring to is his crucifixion. And what John is saying at these two pivotal moments are showing you something about the character and the person of Jesus that we don't want to miss. Jesus was obedient to the Father. And in his obedience, not only in baptism, but the crucifixion, he sets up a sacred moment for you and I to specifically connect spiritually to him that is very real and sacramental. Sacramental means it's a sacred moment. Sacramental means there's an exchange of literally the presence and the grace of God with human beings. It's unbelievable. And when Jesus sets this up, he sets it in two ways. There are only two sacred moments, two sacraments of the church, and that's water baptism and the Lord's table. And both of them remind us, and this is why John was saying this, a book ends of the person of who Jesus is. He says the water, the spirit, and the blood are in agreement because they're showing you fully who the person of Jesus is, and they're also revealing to you and I who his true followers are. Because if we're true followers of Jesus, we follow in the obedience that Jesus also followed in himself. In fact, this is what's interesting, and we'll go through this real quick. Do you need to be baptized to have a living relationship with the living God? No, that is appropriated by faith. But watch this. Should you question a person's faith who will not follow in water baptism? Yes. Why? Because it's an act of obedience. What's he say at the beginning? The follow, they follow what? The commandments. This is the new commandment of the new covenant, that we follow Christ in faith. The idea of the crucifixion, we people for their benefit, that they might know the good news of who Jesus is. That's the blood. And that blood, when it comes over us, teaches us to share that faith with everybody we encounter. When we encounter, our first response should be believe and be baptized. Scripture, you see the word believe in the New Testament. It says to the person, believe and be baptized. It's immediate. And it's an active response of obedience, which is why we have to not only teach that, but as a church, we need to respond in obedient faith to that. If you've never been baptized, water, 
like Jesus was. It's an act of obedience he's waiting for you to make, and it's a personal decision for you to make. And when you're baptized in that way, you are following in his commands. Look at what he says in 9. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater. Now, what is he saying there? Just pause for a second. He's saying, you hear all these different teachers, and when you hear two of them that are in agreement, you're like, that's pretty cool. I like that. We accept that testimony. We expect they kind of bring that word in. He says, but you should look at God's word so much more and give it greater weight. And Jesus is God in the flesh. This is why we have to listen to him, which, has been, which he has given about the Son. He's put everything under him. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in his heart. There it is. You'll see these two things manifest, love of God, love of neighbor. You'll see these commandments lived out, baptism, as well as people that share the good news about Christ's blood and what it's done in their life. Because he has not believed the testimony God has given about the son. He's talking about um, the guy's a liar back up. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about the son. And this is the testimony. Look at this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in, the, in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You're going to see this idea of life over and over again. And it was interesting. It wasn't until this morning that I finally uh, was smart enough to look at the original language to figure out he's not talking about life and death like you're not drawing breath anymore. The word here in the Greek is an interesting word. It's the same word that John uses when he says in John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, maim, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness or abundance. It's a word in the Greek called zoe. And it's different than just not living. It's that there's life inside of this person that can only come from a spiritual transformation. And those that have the Son have this life and that life comes out in obedience. It comes out in wanting to please an audience of one. And it's not concerned about the world. I was talking to the same girl we talked about earlier, was asking about sin. She was a very visual person. So I ended up having to draw for her, if you've ever seen it, something called the bridge. And when we draw the bridge, it shows us that mankind, since the very beginning, has been trying to fill the gap between us and God, the gap that's sin, with religiosity, with just being a good person. And what was interesting for her is it wouldn't click for her. She was having a very difficult time with this until I explained that Jesus was fully God and fully man. Now think about the bridge illustration. You've never seen it. Here's God. Here's here's us. Here's the chasm of sin and death between us. And then standing in the gap between man and God is Jesus, who dies on a cross, fully God, fully God. Man, only Jesus could uniquely bridge the gap between all of humanity and God because he's the only person in all of time who's ever come and said, I'm fully God and fully man. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's such, and when she got a correct picture about Jesus, this young woman said, I get it. I get it. Once she knew who Jesus was, she understood her sin and she understood the solution for her sin, which is the person of Jesus And that what he was asking was for him to live in her so he could live out his commands again. What's the evidence that a person's a believer? What can we look to that's fruit? Two things, I'm going to repeat them again. Baptism through obedience. 
And when we participate in the Lord's table, we participate again in his crucifixion. I love that in uh, the book of Corinthians, Paul wanted to make us understand the connection of these two things in the life of Jesus. He says, you're buried with Christ in baptism and you're raised to walk in newness of life. So you see the person of Jesus in these two sacraments and that's why they're centered around him. So Christ's love leads us first to free victory over life's burdens. That's the first thing. The second thing is it leads us to obedient sacred moments that we participate in with our obedience. And the third thing is prayer is aligned for life. That Zoe life. That's the third thing it leads us toward. Christ's love leads us to this place of prayers aligned for life. I love this in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may what? Know that you have eternal life. He's talking about that Zoe life, that indwelling presence of the living God living in you that you might know that that's true of your life and faith. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we ask of him. That's a pretty cool passage. But let me break it down. The first thing that John was trying to help the church with is don't doubt. Here's the reality. We will. And he knew that we would. And he knew what would overcome our doubts when they came was not a philosophy or our intelligence or our religiosity. He knew was that we had to come back to the one who gave eternal life, who dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we come back to that, we would know that we have eternal life. I struggle with my faith. Anybody, I don't know if you did this. So I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 17. And then by 19, you couldn't tell I was a Christian. Have I ever been through that? Okay, backslidden, if you want to use that word, falling away, that was me, okay? And what happened was I joined the Navy, okay, Marine, okay? So if you've ever been in the military, here, I was so, I was so naive. I thought, I can't go to college because if I go to college, I'm going to party out, and, uh, and then I'll, it won't be, won't be of any benefit. I'll get bad grades and, and party too much. So I thought, I'll go in the Navy. They don't party too hard. That was a mistake. I found out lots of good partiers in the Navy. And so it just led me to the whole season of my life of just complete rebellion. And in that season, I dabbled in some other different religious concepts and tried to get in and be a good person again. And, and nothing worked. Nothing worked. It wasn't until I had to come back to when I was 17 and I gave my life to Jesus. And I gave all of my life to Jesus because I knew I was a sinner. And I needed someone to change the very core nature of who I was. And when that happened at 17, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, when, when Billy Graham calls it being born again, John calls it being born from above. Like in that moment, I knew God was real, not because of reason, because he came and lived within me. Like I could sense the very presence of the living God in my being. I came back to that moment at 17, and that's what brought me back into the faith. It wasn't an argument it wasn't religiosity. My doubts were all there, but I had to come back to that moment that I couldn't produce, that God produced in me. And that's what held me. And that's this idea of when prayers are aligned for life. Because let me tell you, I found out later, lots of people were praying for me. If you've been that person, have you ever been that person? Then you find out later when you come back to your faith, people are like, yep, I was praying for you in that season. And what you realize is the ones that are most connected to this idea of real life their prayer for you is very different. They didn't pray, 
oh God, make Larry's life just a great life. Let him just be blessed. Let him buy the best cars and have the most money. That's not what they were praying over me. What do you think they were praying over me as I was wayward from the living God? They were saying, Holy Spirit, sick him. Like, go get him. Like, go after him. Make his life a living hell so he'll actually fear the reality of hell and then come back to you in faith. Now think about that because that's what God wants for us. He doesn't want our comfort. He wants our obedience and alignment. Uh, recently, I was talking to a family member and uh, they were struggling in their season. I'm like, I get it. I've been there. And the family member said to me, I don't know, I don't know why we pray anyway. I pray. I ask God. And God doesn't do what I ask. God's not showing up in my life. And I looked at him and said, have you ever considered the fact that prayer is not about you changing God, but about God changing you? It's about alignment. And when you're aligned with God and you ask based on the will of God, then God moves because your prayer is now aligned with the life that he so wishes to richly bring into other people. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin, that's brother or sister, that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. That's that Zoe word. I refer to those who, uh, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, and this may be the first time you're reading it, if you weren't doing the reading plan, you're like, dude, that is some serious double talk, John. Like, I have no idea what you're saying. And are you actually saying not to pray for certain people that are dying? Like, what is he saying? And it's interesting. I read a bunch of commentators because it was confusing for me as well. And this one gets into some, if you grew up Catholic or high church, it gets into something people want to talk about mortal versus venial sins here. You ever heard of those two? Mortal means sins that lead to death. Venial means just little teeny sins that don't lead to death. Okay. And they get into that whole thing. That's not what's being said here, but that's an interesting interpretation. Then there's people that say, well, he's dealing with unrepentant sin versus sin. That's another interpretation, which means the people that go, I sinned, I'm sorry, God, I feel bad about it. But the other people are like, I don't really care, I'm going to sin anyway, don't give a flip, okay? Those people, they're leading to death. That's another interpretation. That one's not good either. Then there's the one that says, what about the people that deny the faith? That you can get to, and Hebrews kind of supports this, depending on how you read about it. They'll say, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't look back or you lose your your faith, right? And, and you read that and somebody goes, that's what this is talking about. John's supporting this idea that it's possible to have a sin that leads to death. The problem is, don't forget about Peter, right? Peter who denied the Lord how many times? He denied him three times. And then Jesus tracked him down and restored him three times. So it can't be about that. Although there's something that's being said here, you can't ignore that he's saying there is a sin, singular, that leads to death. Another interpretation says, well, he's talking about habitual sin. He's talking about not the sins like, oops, sin, sorry. He's talking about the people that just keep doing the same sin over and over and over again until their heart becomes so hard that they don't care that they're sinning. He's saying that's the sin that's being dealt with here. So I'm reading all this. I'm like, dag, by the time I was done, I was telling Dustin, I don't even know what it means anymore. I've confused myself by reading too many commentaries. You ever been there? I've read everybody else's opinion. And now after I've read everybody else's opinion, I don't know what my own opinion is anymore until this morning. Isn't that cool that the Holy Spirit gave me an opinion? Finally, I think that's the right opinion today for you and me. What's that word, Zoe? 
What's that word really mean? Abundant life. God's life in you. This is not talking about a sin that leads to physical death. This is talking about the sin that leads to spiritual death. Remember the guy I told you about earlier, Serenthus? The guy that believed that, you know, the Holy Spirit came on Jesus at baptism and then he left Jesus before the crucifixion. This guy spread all kinds of bad teaching in John's day. There's a funny story about the two of them that they both arrived at the same bathhouse one day. Bathhouse back in their day is like they didn't have pubs, they didn't have hotels. A bathhouse was a place that you came to and you get kind of freshened up, you know, get some water, you know, get your body kind of back to a good place, wash your feet, and then you'd stay there the night and then you'd head off somewhere else. That was kind of a cool, relaxing place. Think of it as a sauna for y'all today, okay? Jamie, get your massage, you're good, okay? That, that was what the bathhouse was like. John was there one day when this same guy was in the bathhouse. They said he was so freaked out that he was in the same house as this guy that he, run out, he ran out naked. It's just interesting. He, he felt that strongly about this guy. Why did he feel that strongly? Because his teaching was leading people to a place of not understanding who Jesus really is. And when you really understand who Jesus is, you realize he saved you. He grows you. He's the one that does all all of the beautiful things in your life when you just say yes. Our one role never changes. I don't know if you figure this out in the Christian faith. Here's how I got saved. Let me, let me give you all the pieces. I was messed up. My life was kind of all over the place confusing. You've ever been there? It wasn't what I thought it was supposed to be. I didn't know that was called sin. Somebody finally showed me that's called sin. Then I realized Jesus had died for my sin personally when he died on the cross, when he paid for that with his very blood. And I gave all of my life to him, not knowing what happened, not knowing that he would come into me and indwell me and change the very person that I am. What did I do in that whole process? I didn't do a whole lot. Jesus did all the work. All I had to do was say, I believe. I'm surrendered. I'm being obedient. And then he produced all the work. The way you come to Jesus is the way you continue to grow in Jesus. The process doesn't change. Something else comes up in your life and you go, I know what Jesus wants now. I know what obedience looks like. I surrender to that moment. God comes and lives in that moment. In fact, you can't get more of him, but he can get a lot more of you. And when that happens, he changes who you are and brings that life, abundant life. Life that no one understands. Life not based on you, just your obedience and his living presence. Look, 18 proves it. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. In other words, Christ in you is the one that keeps you safe. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That's the same word, zoe, life. And then John has this weird little salutation moment. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Which you're like, that's it, that's it. Boom, end of letter. Why does he end with that? 
He ends with that because he knows the thing that will always keep us distracted from Jesus being the one focus of our life is idolatry. And idolatry is the one thing that we put above God. And we do it in lots of different ways. Let me come back to just those two. Those two things, the water and the blood, just those two for a second. What's the chief excuse usually from someone that they don't want to be baptized? Does anyone know what it is? I don't want to be in front of people. That's a big one. Because most of us don't. Uh, uh, public speaking is like number three, I think, on the list of ult- ultimate fears. What's, being in front, what's another one? I'm just not ready. I'm not worked it out. Do you realize that in all three of those, it's idolatry? Whether it's the idolatry of pride, the idolatry of fear, the idolatry, there's something there where you're placing that above God. That's the definition of idolatry. If I place it above God, it's now the idol. And what it means to be obedient by faith is I place God over my fear. I place God over my wants. I place God over my desires. Whether it's my finances, right? My spiritual life, my marriage, my work, my community. He is the one that is Lord over all those things. And that's why John says don't get drawn back into idolatry. What about the Lord's table? Did you know you can make the Lord's table idolatrous communion? That we can make that about us the way we want it, the way we'd like to see it come out, how often we'd like to see it, instead of just saying, "Mm, in that moment, I just want to make Lord King in this moment again. To be reminded that Jesus purchased everything for me. In that moment, I'm just receiving what he's done. So my my admonition, my, my, my question for you, or just something to think about today is I'm asking you to respond with sacrificial prayerful obedience. That's what I'm asking of everybody, including myself. Where is God asking you to respond sacrificially, prayerfully for obedience? When you do this, you will understand what it means to really be under the blood of Jesus. Jesus did not want to go to the cross. If you don't believe that, read in the Garden of Gethsemane account. He wanted your salvation desperately, but he was absolutely horrified by what it would take, which is why he weeps blood in the garden, which is why he even asks the Father, if there's another way, please let me know. But there was only one way for the forgiveness of our sin, and it was the death of Christ. And when it costs that much, it requires our obedience. It required his, it requires yours, and it requires mine.